for Samuel chapter 4. I wonder if you've ever been disappointed with God. Ever felt like God failed to come through for you? Like he didn't do what you needed him to do or what you wanted him to do? Now I'm assuming the answer to that question for most of us is yes. Yes, we have felt that. So what did you do with that disappointment? When I think about this, I always think back to high school. And if you were ever that like Christian teenager who wanted to honor God with your life, and the way this always works is, I shouldn't say always, that's a gross generalization, but I know a lot of people who are like me. You decided who you wanted to date slash marry, and then you tell God that, and then you pray that God would do his will, and his will would be exactly what you decided it should be. And then when God doesn't do things your way, because either that person doesn't want to date you, or that relationship didn't go quite the way you thought it should go, well, what gives God? I prayed for your will. And I think it goes beyond just like our stupid high school selves. And I think we do this in other areas of our lives where we say, okay, God, here's my plan. I'm going to pray that you would bless it. And when you don't do things my way, now I'm upset with you because you didn't come through for me. In our text today, God is going to massively underwhelm Israel's expectations. He's going to do exactly the opposite of what they think he should do. And he's going to do it for their good for their preservation as a nation. It's going to seem horrible at the time, but as we move through all of 1 Samuel, we're going to see that this is a necessary step in God's plan to preserve them as a nation. So if you want to stand, we're going to read 1 Samuel chapter 4. It begins, And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, A God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought. And Israel was defeated, and they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. 
And when he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. When the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, What is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, How did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died, for the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel forty years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God had been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, the glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. You can be seated. So what's the, the setting? Back at the tail end of chapter 3, through the very first line of chapter 4, verse 1, we get a, a large, expansive scope of time covering Samuel. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. So you, you get, start to get this feel that after Samuel's call, then the tail end of chapter 3 is telling us what's happening over the next number of years as God is establishing Samuel as a prophet of Israel. And then as we come into the first part of chapter 4, it's like the, the writer hits the rewind button and pulls us back from here in the future where Samuel is established to back right after he gets his call, where God has said to him, verse 11 of chapter 3, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. We, we go all the way forward from Samuel as a child to Samuel as an adult in chapter 3, but then the writer brings us back, and the next three chapters, 4, 5, and 6, other than this very very first verse of chapter 4, we don't hear a single word about Samuel. This is what the Bible scholars call the, the arc narrative. The, the main character shifts from being Samuel, we don't hear about again until chapter 7, verse 3, and the main character is the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. It's a box. We also meet the Philistines. Chapter 4, verse 1, now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. I'm just going to read a quote here from a commentary. The, the Philistines are the enemies of Israel during the latter period of the judges into the early years of the Israelite monarchy, and they are mentioned nearly 150 times in First and Second Samuel alone. They became so entrenched in the, the, the coastal areas and the foothills of Canaan that they eventually gave their name Palestine. So we think of that region as the region of Palestine. Well, that comes from the word for Philistine. That's, the, that's where the root of Palestine is. The entire land is named after them. 
and they become just like this main the the tension in the book there's the internal tensions of david and and saul against each other but like the big backdrop that that's all against is israel fighting against the philistines they came into the country about the same time they're part of what historians call the sea peoples so they had they're originally from a different part of the mediterranean and they had landed they tried to invade egypt and they got defeated in egypt and so they'd landed in canaan and set up shop there and became a dominant force in verse one they're lined up for battle with the philistines aphek the town where the the philistines are set up it's the northernmost of their cities and it's it's close to the foothills where shiloh was located where the Israels are set up here, Ebenezer, if it's the same place mentioned in chapter 7, isn't named until chapter 7, so it's probably just this uninhabited place where the Israelites set up their battle camp. And Aphek would have been close enough to Shiloh that, that the Israelites mustering troops there, or the, the Philistines mustering troops there, would have been seen as a threat to Shiloh, a threat to Israel's center of worship. And so that, that sets the scene here where we've, we've got this, the, the Israelite, the Philistines rather, are coming to Aphek, they're, they're building up their army, and, and the Israelites go, if we don't do something, they're going to attack our center of worship. They're going to come take the tabernacle, the temple, and they're going to haul off uh, everything that's important to us. So then we get the battle. And, and, and what we're going to see in ch- chapter 4, verses 2 through 11, is the faulty thinking of the people of Israel. This battle that they that they line up for, verse 2, it goes very poorly. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. Now I'm listening to uh, the memoirs of U.S. Grant right now, just like on an audiobook, and so he's doing detailed chronicles of basically every battle he was a part of. And so you think about some of these great big battles in the Civil War where you've got 30,000 guys on this side and 60,000 guys on this side. And a lot of times you only have 500 guys die. I mean, that's a lot of people, but 5,000 or or 500 or 1,000 or 1,500 people die on one side. And here, Israel has 4,000 people killed. I mean, it's a massive defeat. How, how do they respond to this massive defeat? Do they stop and they go, I wonder why why God is angry with us, you know? Why, why, why is God upset? How could God let this happen? Well, they ask that how could God let this happen question. Why has the Lord defeated us today? But what it should cause them to question is what's wrong with them. And instead, they're asking what's wrong with God. Like, why didn't he bring, why didn't, why didn't we bring him into the battle with us? If you look at Leviticus chapter 26, God had laid out for the people of Israel in the law basically a clear-cut decision. For the, for the people of God in the Old Testament, the decision was, you can obey me, and I'll bless you. Or you can disobey me, and I will curse you. It's, it's really that straightforward for them. In Leviticus 26, verse 14 says, If you will not listen to me, and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes, and if your soul abhors my rules, so that you will not do my commandments, but break my covenant, and then he starts to list consequences, and in verse 17, 
He says, I will set my face against you and you will be struck down before your enemies. And those who hate you shall rule over you and you shall flee when none pursues. And if you go forward to Deuteronomy chapter 28, we're going to get something very similar. Deuteronomy 28 verse 15. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. In verses 25 and 26, one of those curses, the Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them, and you shall be a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth, and your dead body shall be food for the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth, and there shall be none to frighten them away. So the people should think back to the law and realize that if God is bringing us this great defeat where 4,000 of us get slaughtered and we get driven back, it's because we've abandoned him first. But what they instead decide is that, oh, we need a symbol of God's presence with us. That'll do the trick. Verse 3, and When the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. And now they're probably thinking back to some historical circumstances. You think about the book of Joshua. The people go to cross the Jordan River, and God has the priests go into the river and stand there with the Ark of the Covenant. And the water stops and the people can cross. And then they go to Jericho and they march around the city carrying the Ark of the Covenant. So it's not like totally out of context for them to think maybe we should have the Ark of God. But that shouldn't, that symbol of God's presence should not be the first thing that they, they think to. They should think, where do we stand with God right now? And if you looked at their nation, it's a mess. It's an absolute mess. They're, in fact, going to have to go get the Ark of the Covenant and bring with it the priests who we already know, Hophni and Phinehas, they're sexually immoral, they're stealing the sacrifices, they're they're making themselves rich and fat off of the sacrifices of the people. Like To get the Ark of God, they have to go get the most immoral people in the country to come with them. What was the Ark of the Covenant, if you're not familiar with it? It's a three and three quarters feet long box by two and a quarter feet deep and tall. It's covered in gold. It's got these uh, cherubim, the, these almost, they're angels with funky faces, you know, with their wings spread out over over the top of the Ark. And, and it pictures the presence of God with the people. Inside of the box are the, the symbols of God's provision in a little jar of the manna that God gave the people in the wilderness. A symbol of God's power, Aaron's staff, that God used to strike the Egyptians with all kinds of, uh, uh, it's the word I'm looking for, plagues. And, and then there's the symbol of God's presence through his word with the tablets of, with the Ten Commandments written on them. God's presence was associated for these people with the ark. It's, it's meant to symbolize his presence with them. But, but they should realize that it's meant to symbolize his presence with them. It is not, in fact, the presence of God. I mean, to use a really cliched phrase, you can't actually put God in a box. Most of the times, if people say that, 
should probably question what they're saying because usually they're saying like well i don't believe in god doing the thing you said he do does even if what you're saying is right out of the bible well you can't put god in a box if god told you what he's doing it's not putting god in a box that's a total digression um God does not literally fit in the box of, of the Ark of the Covenant, though. The people, though, seem to think he, he is, and so they send to Shiloh, they fetch the Ark, and they fetch the priests with it. Hophni and Phinehas, verse 4, tells us, come. And when they come into the camp with the Ark of the Covenant, the people are ecstatic. They go ballistic with happiness. It says they're shouting such that the ground shakes. And I just imagine, like, an NFL stadium back when they had fans, and you know, you, especially places like... Uh, Oh, I'm a big Seahawks fan, so like CenturyLink Field in Seattle or Arrowhead down in, in Kansas City that are famous for how much noise. And you can just feel sometimes when you're in a big crowd of people and they're screaming, like it feels like the world is shaking. And, and that's what they're describing here. The earth resounded, it says, verse 5. And the Philistines hear this and they are concerned. Uh, verse 6 what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? Like, what in the world is going on down there? And then they hear, well, the Ark of the Covenant of God has come in, and they freak out because their understanding of what happened in Egypt is a little murky. I mean, they're trying to plug this God of Israel thing into their polytheistic understanding of the world. They think there's a lot of gods, and they think the Israelites must believe that too. Who can de- Verse 8, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty Gods. These are the gods who struck the Egyptians. So they don't, they don't understand like how the Hebrews think necessarily. Uh, they also don't understand exactly where the plagues were. Verse eight. These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Well, the plagues weren't in the wilderness. The plagues were in Egypt. So the Philistines don't have a clear understanding, but they know that box is associated with a god who's got an awful lot of power, and so they start to worry about it. But they aren't driven to total despair. Verse 9, they've got a bigger force, and they just say, hey, you know what, guys? Steal your spines. And not steal. They didn't have steel yet. But, you know, get get a stiff spine. Be strong. Come on. We're going to fight. We're not going to let them take us captive. They're not going to become our slaves. We're not going to become their slaves. We want them to be our slaves instead. Verses 10 and 11 Give us what to the Israelites must have been an unbelievable response. Because even though they went and got this super important box, the second loss is seven and a half times worse than the first loss. The Philistines fought and Israel was defeated and they fled every man to his home. There was a very great slaughter for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. The ark of God was captured and the two sons Eli, Hoph, of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas died. What, what happened, didn't, didn't God tell the Israelites that this box was a representation of his presence? Why would God allow himself to be seen as suffering a crushing defeat? And really, if this is supposed to represent God's presence, and here it is, and then it got captured, didn't God lose? That seems to be how the Israelites think about this. Like, if we bring the box, well, then God has to fight for us, because this is his box. He has to defend it. They're treating it like the the ark itself and the god of the ark, like they're trinkets, like they're good luck charms. 
If we just bring the box, God will have to defend his name and save us. And I wonder, like, if you've ever tried to twist God's arm like that. If you come through for me, God, I'll believe you. But if not, I'm through. If you do this thing that I want you to do, God, then I'm going to trust you. But if not, mm, I don't think so. If we're doing that, it means we're not actually asking God for something. We're demanding it, like a little child throwing a temper tantrum. And God will not have any of that nonsense. Uh, Commentator Ralph Davis says, Yahweh will suffer shame rather than allow you to carry on a false sense of relationship with him. Yahweh will allow you to be disappointed with him if it will awaken you to the sort of God he really is. Brothers and sisters, we can't treat God like some genie in a bottle to save for a rainy day. Don't ignore him until you feel like he might be useful. God is not your puppet. He's not your pet. He's not your slave. He is God. You cannot make God do anything. You will not force him into a corner. He doesn't owe you anything except for judgment for your sin. The final words of of Martin Luther, that that reformer in the 16th century, his, they're actually his final words. They're actually on a piece of paper he had written in his pocket that they found when he died. The words were, we are beggars. This is true. This is how we must view our relationship with God. We are recipients of his grace, of his kindness. We don't go to God to collect a paycheck. God will do what it takes to make you see that he is God and you are not. He will be vindicated in the end. Even if in the moment it seems like, wow, God let himself be defeated. God's not worried about that. God's got a time frame that is so much longer than one little battle in Israel or one little thing in my life. We're going to see even in this battle that God is vindicating himself. Verses 12 through 18, we see a fulfilled prophecy. Following the defeat... A man of Benjamin escapes, verse 12, and he runs to Shiloh. And when he gets to the city, they're they're in deep distress. It says that the people cried out. All the city cried out, which again confirms what God said in chapter 3, verse 11. Behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel, which we now know is this great defeat, at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. Like they are going to be going, what? how could this happen? When when they do this, then, then the people are crying out. Eli's been sitting and watching, which is ironic because he's blind. He can't see, but he's so nervous that he's sitting there waiting to find out what's going to happen. And where does his anxiety come from? Well, verse 13 tells us his heart trembled for the ark of God. In verses 16 and 17, the, the man comes to Eli. The man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, how did it go, my son? And he who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines. And there's been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And the ark of God has been captured. Verse 18, as soon as he mentioned the ark of God, As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate 
and his neck was broken and he died. Notice the cause of Eli's horror. It's when he hears about the Ark of God. It's not when he hears about the great defeat. It's not when he hears about his own sons. When he hears that the Ark of God has been captured, he's so distressed that he collapses backward. Maybe he has a heart attack. We don't know. We just know that when he falls over backwards, he breaks his neck and dies. The, The same thing that his heart was distressed about, verse 13, he's worried about the Ark. Now when he hears that it's been captured, it kills him. He dies because of God removing the ark from the people. This might sound like a tragic end for Eli, and I, I suppose it is. But remember that this awful circumstance is God bringing to pass his judgment. Back in chapter 2, we looked at the, the words of a, an unnamed prophet who came to Eli himself. For Samuel chapter 2, beginning in verse 29, The prophet said, Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promise that your house and the house of your fathers shall go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, Far be it from me, for those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so there will not be an old man in your house. Verse 34, And this that shall come to pass upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be assigned to you. Both of them shall die the same day. God has fulfilled his judgment. Well, he's not totally finished with his judgment on this family yet, but but he's fulfilling what he promised to them. And he visits judgment on the house of those who scorned his honor, his name. The the end of Eli is summarized very quickly, as is often the case in the Old Testament. It just says, he had judged Israel 40 years, period, move on. God brought to pass what he foretold concerning this family, this family that had mocked him, and it carried out their duties in a way that said, God probably won't notice. If you look at Galatians chapter 6 and verse 7, the Apostle Paul writes, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. So we see the fulfillment of a prophecy. The final thing we see, verses 19 to 22, is the departing of glory. In the conclusion of this chapter, we're given the tragic news of another death and a birth. In the conclusion, uh, we, we see that the news of the ark of, and of her father-in-law and her husband sends this woman, Phineas's wife, into labor. Now, now his daughter-in-law, Eli's daughter-in-law, the wife of Phineas, was pregnant and about to give birth. So she's close to her time, and she hears the news of the ark of God was captured, that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, and she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. Now the midwives here, verse 20, they seek to comfort her with the news that she bore a son, which if you remember back to to Hannah's dilemma in chapter 1, she was desperate that God would give her a son. So this should seem like some comfort to this woman who is in the process of dying during childbirth. You've brought a son into the world. They're, They're saying this in a way that It should be cheering her up. 
And she just doesn't even care. Verse 20. She she did not answer or pay attention. No good news for her is going to compensate for what she's just heard. It's interesting. Names of children in those days were often used to signify either something important about the child themselves or about what's going on around them in the world. And so she names her child Ichabod, which means no glory. The, that, the second half of that name is, is the word for glory, kabod or kabod. That, that, it's a sense of, of weightiness, of, of value. And we, we read about the glory of God. And, and the, that, preface, that prefix there, it, it just means that that glory is gone. There is no glory in Israel now. I want you to note the emphasis in these verses, 19 to 21. The real tragedy as seen by Phineas's wife and by the author of 1 Samuel is not the death of Eli and his sons. That's just seen as the fulfillment of, of what God has said. The real tragedy is the capture of the Ark of the Covenant. Verse 13, Eli is concerned about the Ark. Verse 18, the news of the Ark topples Eli. Verse 19, the Ark is listed first in the group of losses. The ark's gone, Eli's gone, Phineas is gone. And the same goes in verse 21. She named the child Ichabod, saying the glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God had been captured and because of her father-in-law and because of her husband. And then in verse 22, the ark stands alone as this woman cries, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. We know from places like Ezekiel chapter 10 and verse 18 that the glory of God is associated with the presence of God. And if the presence of God is associated with the ark, then the ark leaving means the presence is gone. And if the presence is gone, that means the glory is gone. And now what is Israel to do? Well, what this woman does is she names her child Ichabod, no glory, and she dies. So what does this awful story, awful story of sin and punishment and despair have to do with us today? Well, first, I think the great lesson that we are to learn is that we must not treat God like a puppet, like someone we can get to do our bidding. God does not exist for us. We exist for God. And we've got to get that straight. Second and closely related is the fact that God does visit Israel, Israel, Eli's, not Israel's, Eli's house with judgment. The, the fact that he does this should remind us that God, again, will not be mocked. And so we should look inside and say, are there any areas of my life where I am mocking God, where, where I am ignoring him? And if so, I should turn in repentance and say, God, please forgive me for that. He's glad to forgive us if we repent of our sins. The third thing we should learn, we should realize that the life apart from knowing the glory of God is not life as it was meant to be. As we saw last week, the way we come to know his glory is by hearing and heeding his word. The, in, in the Old Testament, this box, it represented God's presence, but God's presence was actually brought to his people through the words. The, the box was going to disintegrate at some point. It's going to be destroyed. It's going to go away. But the word of the Lord 
always remains. Uh, commentator H.L. Ellison says, The glory of God had indeed departed, but not because the ark of God had been captured. The ark had been captured because the glory had already departed. The people had quit listening to the voice of the Lord. If you remember the first part of chapter 3, the word of the Lord was rare in those days. The people had quit listening to the voice of God, and and the glory was gone. So brothers and sisters, let us not count on earthly signs and symbols for our salvation. Religious practices and rituals, let us hear and trust the words of the living God. That, that ark, as important as it was, was ultimately destroyed. I just want to close by reading 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 22 to 25. Because no matter what else in this world disintegrates and falls apart, which will be everything, God's word will remain. 1 Peter 1, beginning in verse 22, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news, the gospel that was preached to you. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you are present. You were present in that day through your word, and the people didn't listen. But you were speaking, God. And you are speaking in our day through your word. And Lord, would you give us ears to hear it? And would you give us lips that are free in our expression of it, that we would speak your word to those around us and that they would receive your word as well. There is no greater need for us than to hear your words and to obey them. Help us, help us not to look at you as some genie in a bottle that we can call up when we need you. Help us to know that you are always here and always speaking and that we always need you. Lord, we ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.